Our first reading is taken from John chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples didn't realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with some fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net wasn't torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have some breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And our second reading is a continuation of the first, John chapter 21, verse 15 to the end of the chapter. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old... You will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. 
Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who'd leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumour spread among the brothers that this disciple wouldn't die. But Jesus didn't say that he wouldn't die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. It's generally agreed that John's Gospel ends with chapter 20. It's a fitting climax and a good conclusion to his narrative. Jesus has appeared twice to his disciples. The first time he shows them his hands and his side, imparts the Holy Spirit to them, sends them out into the world with the authority to forgive sins. As we saw last week, though Thomas wasn't there, he missed out on that that, that appearance, so Jesus stages a comeback for his benefit, convincing the sceptical Thomas that he really is alive, eliciting from him the tremendous confession of faith, my Lord and my God. Jesus then pronounces a blessing on all those who, unlike Thomas, have come to faith without seeing with their own eyes as he did. And then the narrator addresses his audience directly. says, Jesus did loads of other stuff that isn't written in this book. The author has been selective in his choice of material. But what he did write down, he wrote so that we, the readers of his gospel, might believe and that by believing we might have life in Jesus' name. What an ending! But it isn't. Because instead, afterwards, we have chapter 21, this kind of epilogue tacked on the end, where Jesus has breakfast with his disciples and then has that very awkward conversation with Peter, where he says to him three times, do you love me? One question for each of the three times that Peter had denied him. And with each answer, Jesus tells Peter to feed and take care of his lambs and his sheep. Peter has failed. He's let Jesus down, but Jesus doesn't write him off. Instead, he has this conversation with Peter to assure him that he hasn't blown it. Jesus still has work for him to do. There is life after failure. Simon Peter needed that conversation. He needed Jesus to come back and see him again. Because the past was holding him back. At the end of John 20, he should have been ready to go. He knew Jesus was alive. He knew what he had to do. He and the other disciples had, to all intents and purposes, received the Holy Spirit when Jesus breathed on them. There was work to be done. As the Father has sent me, said Jesus, I am sending you. Only Peter wasn't going anywhere. Peter, the leader of the pack, was suffering from a severe case of inertia. It's like they're all waiting for him to give the lead, to set the pace, to decide what happens next. And then, yes, at last, the decision. I'm going fishing. And they don't want to leave him by himself, so they'll say, well, we'll we'll come with you. But it's hard 
not to read that declaration as a step back, as a step away from following Jesus, a reversion to the life he had before Jesus came on the scene. Yet why? Why should Peter do this? Jesus was alive, wasn't he? Didn't that mean that nothing could ever be the same again? Hadn't he been called to catch people rather than fish? And yes, of course, at one level, that was absolutely true. Nothing could ever be the same again because Jesus was alive. The resurrection of Jesus was a reality. But for Peter, it wasn't enough to release him from his abiding sense of failure. And that was a serious problem. How could he possibly go around telling everybody, your sins are forgiven in Jesus' name, if he didn't feel forgiven himself? You can't do it. You can't do that with integrity, that's hypocrisy. And there are Christians who get caught in that kind of bind. Yes, I I know and believe that God forgives everybody their sins, but, but not mine because of what I've done or the way in which I've let him down. I, yeah, in theory, I believe forgiveness is there, but for me, that's a different story. And you can understand why Peter might have felt that way. After all, the disciples had deserted Jesus, but only Peter had disowned him. And only Peter had disowned him after rashly stating that he was prepared to lay down his life for Jesus. Everybody else might run away from you, but I never will, he said. Why Jesus asked him, do you really love me more than these? Words of bravado that came to nothing when the crucial moment came. And he denied knowing Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. So you can understand why perhaps he had difficulty accepting that this particular sin was covered by the grace of God, that he was forgiven. And if he didn't feel forgiven, how could he tell other people that their sins were forgiven as well. Though everything ought to have been different because Jesus was alive, the fact that nothing had changed just made him feel worse, actually, because Jesus was alive and yet he felt no different, and that made matters far harder. So, what do you do when you don't know what to do? You do what you know. You go back to what's safe. You go back to what's tried and trusted. I'm going fishing. It's less responsibility. He knows he can catch fish. He's been doing it all his life. Except that night he can't even catch fish. Can you imagine how that reinforces the sense of being a complete and utter failure and a total waste of time? If he didn't say that loud to the other disciples, I bet he said it to himself, I can't even catch fish now. Perhaps it's a measure of just how low he was that after the stranger on the shore tells him to throw their nets on the right side of the boat and they catch a massive shoal of fish, he still doesn't know who it is. <coughs> Takes the disciple whom Jesus loved to say, look, it's the Lord. Don't you see, Peter? Don't you realise who it is that's telling us to do these things? And straight away, Peter jumps into the lake, swims to the shore to Jesus, leaves the others behind to bring the fish to land. There is no hesitation on his part. Why so keen? Was he grateful for the bumper haul of fish? Was there a sense of relief that the whole night hadn't been a complete waste of time? That he wasn't a total failure? Or maybe when he was with Jesus, he felt okay. When he wasn't with Jesus, that he couldn't 
lose that sense of regret over what he'd done. Going back over it again and again, the terrible night when he denied knowing the person who meant more to him than anything else in the world. As with any one of us, being alone made him feel more inclined to despair. So when he comes and meets Jesus, he finds that Jesus is already cooking breakfast. He says to Peter, bring some of the fish you've just caught. I like that. The fish you've just caught, like Jesus didn't tell them how to catch it. And join me. And they eat together first. And the disciples needed that. They were cold and tired and hungry after a night out on the lake. But the breakfast speaks of far more than than food for cold and tired and hungry disciples. It speaks of welcome, acceptance, friendship, companionship, grace. And that means the world, because as the philosopher Eric Hoffer has said, there is no loneliness greater than the loneliness of a failure. The failure is a stranger in his own house. And Peter felt himself to be a failure. But Jesus welcomed him and shared a meal with him. The meal sets the context for the difficult conversation that Jesus has with Peter afterwards. It means that as they talk together, and Jesus asks those questions about Simon Peter, do you love me? They've already shared a meal together. It's already happened in the context of friendship, grace, acceptance, welcome. Words can so easily be misunderstood and misinterpreted. Do you love me? Words of accusation, words of blame, words of questioning. But there's something about words that are said in a context where people know each other and accept each other, having shared a meal together, and there's something sacred about that. And Jesus ate with Peter first and spoke with him afterwards because the meal set the context for the words. The meal said, you are my friend. As my friend, let's talk about what happened. What you did and what you said. So as Jesus and Peter go for a wander down the beach and Jesus starts to explore with Peter what his feelings really are, what the nature of his commitment to Jesus is really all about, as they have a heart-to-heart, they do it in the context where a meal has already made it clear that Jesus meets Peter in a spirit of grace and forgiveness. He hasn't come to haul him over the coals, hasn't come to blame him or condemn him. He wants to set things right, to repair what's been damaged in their relationship. So Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Peter had protested before how much he was devoted to Jesus without really meaning it or understanding what the implications of his words were, just how much commitment to Jesus would involve. By asking these three questions, Jesus takes the lid off Peter's denial, brings it out into the open. What happened isn't denied or swept under the carpet. They don't pretend it never happened. But neither is he criticised or condemned for it. The failure is acknowledged. The failure is addressed. The failure is forgiven. The perpetrator of the failure is forgiven the perpetrator of the failure is restored. That's grace. That's forgiveness. And Peter has a chance this time to say honestly how much he loves Jesus as a friend. 
Three times, once for each of the times he denied him. And there are no empty words this time. No meaningless bluster. Peter says what he has to say out of a sense of grief at the way his threefold denial of Jesus has damaged their friendship. And out of a sense of gratitude as well at the grace Jesus has shown him and the opportunity to put things right. He can never make it up to Jesus for what he has done. There's no way on earth he can ever do that. But that's okay. Because Jesus forgiving him means he doesn't need to. That's what forgiveness means. You don't have to make it up. You don't have to atone for what you've done. What Jesus wants is for Peter to stop seeing himself as a failure and to start to see himself again as the person whom Jesus has called to take care of and feed his lambs and his sheep. Tonight we have eaten with Jesus. Not fish, I'm afraid. Sorry about that. But he's welcomed us to share bread and wine together in his presence. And it doesn't matter what we've done. Doesn't matter what we've said. Doesn't matter how badly or how often we failed. He welcomes us just the same. He extends to us the same grace and acceptance and forgiveness that he extended to Peter. But now having shared this meal together with us, in the quietness, if Jesus were to call you by name and say, do you love me? How would you reply? And Jesus says to you, it's time to leave the past behind. And knowing all that you've done and knowing everything about you, Jesus says, do you love me? How do you reply? Jesus says, you are not a failure. And whatever may have happened in the past, Jesus never for one moment stopped loving you, nor will he ever stop loving you. So he addresses you by name and says, do you love me? And how do you reply? And he says, come and work for me. This chapter in John's Gospel is like an epilogue. It's tacked on the end. The narrative could have concluded with the end of chapter 20, but where would that have left Peter? Mired in his sense of failure. So maybe the extra chapter is a measure of the way in which Jesus came back for Peter. And we have that account of his rehabilitation. Because chapter 20... Or that makes a fitting end to the gospel and it ends with the resurrection of Jesus and his commissioning the disciples. It wasn't the end of the story for Peter. It couldn't be because he was still stuck in the past and he needed to be set free from that. The Anglican Bishop George Appleton once said, at any point a man may write under his own life story so far the words to be continued. 
the final chapter always remains to be written. And it can be written in co-authorship with God, if that man so wills. And that's good news. Because it doesn't matter how many chapters of your life up until this point have recounted a story of failure. Because God wants to write the next chapter for you. And wants to do so on the basis that Jesus draws a line under your past. And says, let's begin again. Because he's the one who accepts and welcomes and forgives and calls you into his service. To everyone listening to this sermon, Jesus says, come and work with me. Come and work with me.